Growing up, I learned to quickly fall in love with the outdoors. You see, my dad was a nature enthusiast. Uh, for the pathfinders in the room, he truly had that master guide mentality. Uh, to put things into perspective for you, his favorite place to hang out when I was growing up was the local outdoor store. I can't count the times that he paced the aisles looking for the latest sleeping bags and tents and fishing poles. And um, it got to the point where my brothers and I knew that if we were going to accompany him on one of these trips, uh, we had to pack a lunch because he was always looking to make a day out of it. It's no surprise then that his favorite time of year was our annual trip uh, to upstate Maine. Every year we'd take a camping trip um, to the deep woods to a series of, of lakes and rivers where even the best of our droids and iPhones can't find cell phone reception or service. Um, and one year he was particularly excited about this trip because he had purchased a brand new axe at this store. Um, and prior to the experience, I had no clue that you could spend hundreds upon hundreds of dollars on what at the end of the day is just another piece of wood. Um, but it's true that we spend money on the things that we're passionate about. Um, and he had no problem spending $600 on an axe that I wouldn't dream of. Um, so the first thing that he did when we got to the campsite was instruct us on how to properly use an axe. Um, now, growing up with my father, it certainly wasn't the first time we've heard this tutorial. Um, it was normally something that he started every camping trip with. Um, but under the circumstances with his new toy, he deemed it necessary to impart on us this knowledge one more time. And my brothers and I were respectful, and we tried to, to heed his warnings and listen to his advice for a slow, steady approach with the axe. So we were very attentive um, the first couple of days of the trip, but as the week wore on um, and our technology withdrawals started to, to hit us, uh, we were looking for things to do. And when my dad uh, decided to take his, his Sabbath afternoon nap, um, we looked at the axe and quickly figured out what we were going to do. Um, if any of you have seen uh, ESPN's World's Strongest Man competition, we were trying to see if we could emulate uh, what we had seen in that show. And for the strongest in various, uh, various performances, and one of the things they do is to see who can uh, cut through the biggest piece of wood with a single swing of an axe. So we thought it would be a good idea to do that, and for the first couple of rounds of our simulated competition, things were going smoothly. Um, but fate would have it that as I sized up a log that was about half the size of my 12-year-old figure frame, um, I understood quickly that the slow, steady approach with the axe was not going to be sufficient. So in my best Mark McGuire or Sammy Sosa impression, I pulled the axe behind my head. Um, and for those of you who know how to use an axe, by the way, the goal is to strike the log with the blade of the axe and to have the log split. Um, I unfortunately did the opposite and swung the axe as hard as I could at this log, missing the, hand, uh, the blade entirely and instead striking the wood dead in the center of the handle, uh, leaving the axe splitting beneath my feet instead of the log. So the sound was loud enough to wake my sleeping father um, instantaneously, and, and he got up. Um, and I'll spare you the specifics of his reaction. You can insert your own preferred obscene gestures or profanity. Um, but there was one thing that I learned that day, and it was that there is nothing more frustrating for a father figure or any type of role model than for their advice and sound words to go untaken or unheeded. 
The Apostle Paul faces a very similar mindset when he writes the book of Galatians. You see, he's writing to a group of people that he knows well. He's been to the province of Galatia two separate times previously to this account. So these are people that he's invested time in. These are people that he's eaten with. And most importantly, these are people that he has given the gospel truth to. Since he has left this most recent time, however, there have been a group of people called Judaizers that have infiltrated the region. Now, these Judaizers are preaching a message that is completely contradictory to what Paul is saying, where Paul has, has told these people of Galatia that it is by the grace and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that you are saved, and that exclusively, these Judaizers are reverting to an older message. They are saying that uh, instead of the grace and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ saving you, it's actually based upon following the laws of Moses. They're saying that it is by following the Levitical precepts found in the Torah, or the first five books of the Old Testament, that one politicians, they try to tear down Paul. You know, it's never good enough to, to battle on, on beliefs or battle on precepts or theologies. It seems that more and more we're headed in a direction where to bring validity to your own claims, you have to diminish the credibility of your opponent. I mean, you're all familiar with the political ads. Even in this most recent election, um, not only are we questioning Democratic or Republican stances, uh, we're questioning the integrity of Barack Obama or, or whether or not Mitt Romney even has a soul. You, you've seen some of the advertisements are, are vile even. And it's, it's very similar in the things that are happening in Galatians. Um, undoubtedly, these Judaizers are questioning whether Paul has credibility because of his you know, relative newness to the gospel. Um, so it's understandable then that Paul begins his letter by defending himself. In verse 10 he says, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul associates his message with Jesus himself, as if to say, what I'm saying is true, and even more so, justifying himself, saying, if you have a problem with what I'm saying, you need to reanalyze your stance and your position, because ultimately, you have a problem with what God is saying. So Paul continues, and, and he, he explains to these people that it is by grace that you are saved, and he's, he's baffled that they are removed into this uh, legalistic theology. And I find it interesting or funny that history has such a way of repeating itself, even in our present context and congregations, we have people um, that are convinced that it is by keeping the Ten Commandments that you are saved, or, or perhaps more at home in our Adventist congregations, keeping the 28 fundamental beliefs as found on our SDA website are what truly saves you. Now, I don't think Paul has a problem with the law, and I want to make known that I uh, definitely support the law. I believe obedience is a sign of our love and our appreciation for Christ's sacrifice. And even in Romans chapter 7, Paul says, oh, What shall we say then? Shall we get rid of the law so that grace may abound? And his response, of course, is certainly not. In Paul's mind, the law and grace can go hand in hand. In Paul's view, though, it, the law only becomes a problem when it oversteps its boundaries. You see, Paul's under the impression that grace is sufficient and law comes after grace, but when grace becomes central, I'm sorry, when law becomes central in our lives, that is when it becomes a problem. Now, what I want to suggest to you this morning are that there are thousands or even millions of gospels vying for our attention today. 
A lot of us in here no longer struggle with this legalistic portrayal of Adventism. Some of us have finally come to terms with the fact that it is by grace alone that we are saved. But in our 21st century context, there are plenty of other things that are trying to trip us up. Some a lot more subtle than this legalistic portrayal. For some of us, it's the gospel of prosperity. It's the Joel Osteen gospel that says that we need to be working 60 or 70 hours a week blindly in pursuit of our next promotion in order to find financial security in this life. It's the gospel that says that we need to to seek after more money in order to be able to afford a new car, a new house, a down payment on a yacht, and perhaps gifts for the family that we no longer have time to spend our days with. For others of us, it could be the gospel of self-worth that trips us up. This is the gospel that uh, promotes the testaments of GQ and JBOP and People magazine. It's the gospel that says that we need to look a certain way, we need to dress in a certain brand of clothing, we need to smoke a certain brand of cigarettes, and we need to conform to a certain ideology in a physical way in order to be accepted in this world. It's the gospel that affects our younger generation when they're growing up, and tells them that they need to develop this certain standard, this worldly standard, before they're even able to fully comprehend their worth in our Savior, Jesus Christ. See, there are thousands upon thousands of Gospels that vie for our attention. And what Paul is suggesting this morning is that anything, absolutely anything, good or bad, that steps in the way of Jesus being central in our lives is problematic. The words of Elijah radiate through the Apostle Paul. How long will you waver between two options? If the Lord is God, serve him. And you're all familiar with the story found in 1 Kings where Elijah is battling uh, with the Baal prophets. They go on top of a mountain and they're debating who serves the real God. Is it Yahweh? Is it our God, the God of Elijah, the God of Paul? Or is it the local God of the Baal prophets? And after much debate, uh, Elijah is convinced that Mere words are not going to get the point across. So he strikes a wager with these prophets and he says, we are both going to construct an altar. And we're going to pray to our individual God and the God that responds first by consuming our altar with fire is the God that is the true God. And you're all familiar with the story. The the Baal prophets construct their altar and they spend hours upon hours, according to scripture, trying to get their God to respond. They get to the point of yelling and screaming and cutting themselves. And it's a bizarre story and we're quick to point the finger and, and laugh at them until I look at myself and I realize how many times have I made a mockery of myself looking for sustenance and sufficiency in the things of this world. How many times have I, have I looked for financial security? How many times have I tried to emulate what I'm seeing in popular culture only to find out that it will always leave me high and dry? And you know where the end of the story is going. After Elijah sees the failed attempt of the Baal prophets, he adds insult to injury and pours water all over his own altar. And he prays. And the minute he, he ceases his prayer, the altar is taken up in smoke. The wet altar that had no chance of being caught on fire was consumed by our God. Is it any coincidence then that the book of Hebrews calls our God just that, a consuming fire? You see, God desires to be a consuming fire in each of our lives, in each of our present context, congregations, and cultures. But it is us (laughs) that are holding back the matches. You see, I think you and I 
I think our tendency, at least for myself, is, is to, to keep God at bay and to put him on the back burner in our lives, whether because we're afraid of the results that might happen or, or whether because we, we aren't quite sure of stepping into the unknown. But God wants to be that consuming fire in our lives, and all he's waiting for is our permission. In a couple of weeks here, we have our annual harvest program at the church. And one of the greatest things about that is that it gives us a chance to evaluate our own faith in order to make it something that's presentable uh, to our community. You know, and the greatest thing about being a consuming fire, the greatest ideology I can think of when it comes to this flame, is that a flame is never satisfied to burn in a segregated area. You see, flame, the natural inclination of fire is to grow. And people can't help but come into contact with fire without themselves burning as well. We serve a God that wants to be intentional in our lives and, and, and such an influence in our lives that when we go out and meet others, people can't help but be impressed to seek after the God that we serve. You see, our God is a consuming fire and a sufficient flame in our lives. And it's time that we gave him a chance to fully take our lives up in smoke, to fully uh, allow in our lives the change that he is looking for. So many times we're afraid of, of losing things in this world, but at least looking back and being honest about my life, when I've had success in a worldly manner, every single time I've been left high and dry. Looking back on my own personal life, it's the time that I've invested and dedicated and, and had a consistent prayer and devotional life that I find the most suitable and that I find the most perseverance and the most satisfying in my life. So what I'm trying to get across today for myself and for all of us here is to, again, refocus ourselves and give the God that is a consuming fire a chance to consume our lives and in the process consume our community and consume our world.